Good evening. Uh, my name is Michelle Judd. I, and as the Managing Director of the Keck Institute for Space Studies, I'd like to welcome you to this very special event. Now, while we are all here tonight to listen to our great panelists, we would not be here tonight without the exceptional generosity of the W.M. Keck Foundation, who is the sponsor of the Keck Institute. We are in our final year of funding, and uh, final year of funding from this foundation, and if you're one of the many students, postdocs, uh, faculty, researchers, or members of the public that have actually been to one of our programs or participated in our lectures, uh, please give an extra loud thank you to the Keck Foundation as we show our appreciation for them now. So. Okay, it might sound like everybody here has been to a Keck Institute uh, event, so that, that, one that makes me feel really proud. But for those of you who uh, have not had a chance to be here with us before, the Keck Institute um, is tasked with positively impacting the future of space exploration, and we do that in three main ways. I guess you could probably figure out by the name of our Keck Institute for Space Studies that we do studies, and that is uh, our number one way that we think we can impact future space missions. We put out a call and we let experts tell us the top uh, ideas that should be studied for the year. We fly 30 people in uh, to study these ideas, and then we write up a report and then submit it uh, to the public and to NASA, and they take action on it as they will. Uh, the second way we have an impact on future space uh, exploration is by identifying tomorrow's leaders today. And I am so excited about all of the uh, graduate student fellows that are in the audience, the prize postdoctoral fellows that we fund here, and all of the student study leads that we have. Uh, for me, that is honestly one of the best things that, about my job is I get to interact with all of you. And then finally, uh, we put on public events so that we can keep all of you excited about space exploration. And so um, in this event, we are kind of combining these last two elements together. Uh, some Caltech students from the uh, Caltech-Y Social Activism Speaker Series uh, came to us and asked us to co-host this event. And the speaker series strives to connect the Caltech community with engaging speakers on a variety of topics. And Tom and I did not have to think long about whether or not we should uh, help these students out and have this particular panel. We thought it was a great idea. And so as this event is actually organized by the students, I think that we should turn it over to them. So uh, Nick Wedlock is on the executive committee of the Caltech Y Social Activism Speaker Series. And when he's not working on putting on great events uh, like tonight's, he is getting his PhD in uh, material sciences, focusing his research on fundamental properties of battery materials. So please help me give a warm kiss welcome to Nick Wedlock. Thank you, Michelle, for the introduction. Um, I would like to thank you all for coming to our event titled uh, Profits in the Final Frontier, Entrepreneurial Pursuits in Space. 
obviously, this event was proposed and organized by the Caltech Y Social Activism Speaker Series and supported by the Keck Institute for Space Studies. And as this is a uh, Caltech Y centennial event, uh, any Caltech student can get their name written down after the event and you will be eligible to get the red Caltech Centennial T-shirt uh, for civic engagement and social activism. <laughs> so everyone knows that launching a successful startup is not easy, but adding space into the mix makes it even more difficult. So we have here tonight representatives from three companies representing the entire spectrum of space startups. Tethers Unlimited manufactures products for use in space, Planet Labs uses a network of satellites to image the Earth, and Planetary Resources has the long-term plan to mine asteroids. So I'd like to briefly introduce our speakers and moderator. If you could come up and I'll give you all an introduction. So first we have Dr. Rob Hoyt from Tethers Unlimited. He received his master's and PhD in aeronautical and astronautical engineering at the University of Washington. He co-founded Tethers Unlimited in 1994 and has used his expertise to pioneer the development of technologies for in-space manufacturing, mitigation of orbital debris and radiation belts, and propellantless propulsion for spacecraft. Dr. Michael Rubel received his PhD from the Graduate Aerospace Laboratories at Caltech in 2007. As a part of the research and development team at Planet Labs, Dr. Rubel created both the spacecraft camera control software and Constellation autopilot system and is helping to develop new imaging approaches and technologies. Uh, Mr. Chris Lewicki received his bachelor and master's degrees from the University of Arizona and worked at NASA on the Mars Exploration Rovers and Phoenix Lander. He is the president and chief engineer at Planetary Resources and is responsible for the strategic development of the company's mission, engagement with customers and the scientific community, and leading day-to-day -day operations. And finally, our moderator is Professor Sergio Pellegrino, the Joyce and Kent Cressa Professor of Aeronautics and Professor of Civil Engineering here at Caltech, as well as a G JPL Senior Research Scientist. Professor Pellegrino is interested in the mechanics of lightweight structures, with a focus on packaging, deployment, shape control, and stability. With his students and collaborators, he is currently working on novel concepts for future space technologies, spacecraft antennas, and space uh, solar power systems. So without any further delay, let's welcome the panel and learn how to have a successful space startup. Good evening and thank you for uh, joining us. I'm Sergio Pellegrino. I'd like um, uh, to ask um, the panel to give a brief description of their companies uh, for us to get us started. Uh, so Rob, would you like to get started? Sure, uh, so I'm from Tethers Unlimited. We're a relatively small company up in the Seattle area and we develop transformative technologies for missions in space and defense. And that's kind of the boring marketees speak for what we really try to do is develop mind-blowing new technologies to enable dramatic new technologies for space missions. Uh, we started out 21 years ago very focused on a technology called space tethers for applications like deorbiting spacecraft at the end of their lifetimes to 
help with the space debris problem and orbital maneuvering. Um, but then over the past 16 or 17 years or so, we have branched out into several other areas. So now we're developing a number of high-performance component technologies to enable very small spacecraft to do operationally relevant missions, things like software-defined radios, uh, new kinds of uh, thrusters for spacecraft. Um, and then another area that we're doing a lot of work in, and my personal focus the past few years, has been developing the capabilities for in-space manufacturing of components of satellites, components of space stations, that sort of thing. So, thanks. Um, Planet Labs was founded in 2010 by three former NASA uh, scientists. The, uh, the goal from the beginning has been to image the whole world every day. We felt that in Earth imaging there is a tradition of going for higher resolution, more bands and things like that, but uh, if you can't see what's happening as it's happening, you, you miss a lot. Um, as our founder, our, our CEO is fond of saying, you can't fix what you can't see. So there's applications like deforestation monitoring, treaties like that, environmental monitoring, agriculture. Um, if there's deforestation and you only get a picture of it once every year, you can see that it's happened, but you can't do anything about it. So that's been our goal from the beginning, and it's a very unifying principle. Uh, in San Francisco, gosh, I'm not even sure how many people we have now. It, it, it grows so quickly. Um, maybe about 180 people in San Francisco. We were also recently uh, pleased to welcome the company uh, Blackbridge and, and RapidEye into our, uh, into our company. That happened a, a couple of months ago. So now it's almost 300 people. Wow, it goes, goes fast. Um, but yeah, we, uh, we have launched over 100 satellites into orbit at this point. The little things are about this long and about that far around. They're, they're CubeSat form factor, so three units. Um, and I believe it's the largest Earth imaging constellation in history at this point. Uh, we've also lost about 40 on the launch pad and assorted rockets blowing up. So it hasn't all been easy, but um, there's some great photos. If anyone wants to see some, I'll, I'll show you afterwards. I've got my laptop here. So, um, And thanks so much for coming. So Michael, how many of those satellites are operational? Oh, gosh. Um, Maybe. <laughs> I should know this. Order of magnitude. I do the planning. <laughs> Order of magnitude, 40 or 50 right now. Uh -huh. um, we just shipped out another 40 or so. And I, there's going to be a big launch next year, uh, another 150 satellites. So. Okay, thank you. So next we'll have Chris, uh, who is a Planetary Resources. Good evening, everyone. Uh, I'm Chris from Planetary Resources. Our goal is an audacious one. Uh, and beyond asteroid mining, it actually is a goal to uh, work on technologies, uh, grow markets, and create businesses that expand the economy of humanity off this planet and into the solar system. Uh, and finding uh, what economic engine it's going to be that, uh, that really creates the demand side economics for what we're, we're working on. And our thesis on that is that uh, resources have really been every part of our daily lives from uh, you know, the first day of our, of our uh, self-awareness. And uh, that won't change anytime soon. And we've crossed uh, continents, we've crossed oceans. Now we just have a bigger ocean to cross uh, to get to the next resources. Uh, what that means for us today is uh, in reducing the cost of uh, robotic uh, remote sensing dramatically so that it doesn't take a billion dollars or even hundreds of millions of dollars uh, to do 
what is very traditional prospecting to, uh, uh, to understand a resource and to understand the next step after you have found uh, the most valuable real estate in the solar system uh, to be able to characterize uh, what's needed next. So uh, we're approaching that in a kind of a agile software uh, type of mode where uh, we build out the technology and kind of release alpha versions, beta versions. We use Earth Orbit as our laboratory for doing that. We've launched our, our first satellite uh, that is on a path to the asteroids and are, are working on our next, which uh, includes the sensor technologies, which will uh, help us find the right resources in space. And also happy to be here tonight uh, to share uh, what it's like to do something that is not presently possible. And how many employees do you have in your company? Uh, we're 43 right now, and uh, we're kind of steady as she grows, uh, you know, growing very methodically. I've uh, been in business for uh, over five years now. Uh, also based in Seattle, Washington, Rob and I uh, cross paths a lot. Uh, and uh, at the woodworking store. Yeah, at the woodworking <laughs> store. Hobbies. <laughs> uh, we'll talk about that later. Okay, so as a further warm-up, I'm going to ask some initial questions, uh, and then uh, please start thinking, in fact, about the questions you want to ask. So the first question I want to ask, uh, Rob, um, so uh, of the three companies, the three startups, yours has been around uh, the longest. Um, so what kind of changes have you seen in the business environment, in the space startup environment? What has changed uh, from starting to now? Well, we, we first got started 21 years ago, um, and there the space industry was, uh, the agenda was really dominated by NASA and some of the DOD space programs. Um, there were some, uh, there, there were a few commercial ventures trying to start things like broadband data communication satellites like Teledesic and Iridium in the, at that time. Um, but back then, the you know, the investment uh, environment for w was not very friendly to space. Space was kind of a four-letter word there. Um, so we, we really focused on trying to grow the company organically by scrabbling for and winning uh, R&D contracts to help us develop the technologies we, uh, we wanted to, to bring to the market. Um, what we've seen over the past 10 years or so is uh, really kind of an explosion or a, a reinvigoration of the space industry driven in large part by the rapid advance of the capability of very small low-cost spacecraft things like the CubeSats little loaf of bread size satellites that you know 10 12 years ago were were mainly kind of a you know university project um, usually they were just a radio repeater um, their capabilities, the, the amount of functionality you've been able to pack, you're able to package into that volume has advanced really rapidly. We're starting to see the, the benefit, finally, after 40, 50 years, starting to see the benefits of Moore's Law coming into play in the satellite industry. And now folks like Planet Labs and a number of other companies are, are able to do real missions with them. And the really exciting thing is that that low cost platform is enabling whole new business plans that five, 10 years ago didn't have a chance in heck of closing. You know, now those business cases can close and you're seeing significant amounts of investments in some of these companies uh, to, to develop these new, new services that use space as, as part of their platform. 
Okay, so thank you. And um, so now I have a question um, for Mike about uh, Planet Labs. So uh, one of the concerns with constellations is the um, is the space junk that is potentially created through a large number of satellites. Uh, do you have uh, technical uh, capabilities to destroy these satellites? So what uh, what is what are the rules that you have to follow, and what what is what is the practice you follow? Sure, that's a great question. Thank you. Um, so, little known, our founder, one of our founders, Will Marshall, and uh, also our director of missions right now, were very involved in space debris mitigation before they started Planet. They worked on a program called, um, oh, now the name escapes me, uh, but to use photon pressure. So, um, we think a lot about debris, actually. It, obviously, it affects us a lot. Hardly a day goes by, we don't get at least a few warnings from JSPOC that something's going to hit one of our satellites. Um, but we do, uh, we have a three-pronged uh, approach to trying to, to mitigate. The first is we stay in low orbits. Most things in, in LEO might be seven or 800 kilometers up, and those stay up for a long time. Uh, we, most of our satellites have launched out of the ISS, which is at 400 plus epsilon kilometers. They typically come down in six to eight months. Um, the, the orbits we'd like to hit, sun-synchronous, might be 475, would, might stay up three to five years. So we're below the vast majority of things in low Earth orbit, and our orbits decay quickly. Uh, so for the most part, we don't interfere with low Earth orbit operations. Uh, also, we share our uh, ephemerides with the Space Data Association, and we publish them publicly. They're up on our website. So it is possible to see if our satellites, according to our best fit for where they are, are going to collide with anything. So we try to be good space citizens. Um, and also, we have techniques when we do find out that there's a, a conjunction going to happen. There are a few things we can do. Our satellites are, are not powered, but we can adjust their orientation, and we, uh, we can use drag to try to, to budge them out of the way. Okay. So the concern is addressed. Thank you. <laughs> um, so now, now a question um, uh, to Chris. Um, so uh, one of the... One of, one of the first questions that are asked in connection with uh, uh, the exploitation of space resources is who owns them? And um, so can you tell us uh, what is the legal framework or what is the, uh, the framework under which you operate, under which your investment is made? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the law of the land here is a treaty that was established in 1967 called the Outer Space Tra Treaty, uh, which was, uh, was carefully put in place to make sure that uh, uh, when the space race uh, was playing out, that it wouldn't be a red moon or it wouldn't be a red, white, and blue moon, uh, and that uh, it, it wasn't something that would be, you know, subject to sovereignty, uh, being like the 51st state. Uh, what's little known is that uh, during the discussions of, uh, of that treaty and uh, others that would follow was, was that uh, there was a, a lot of emphasis placed on making sure that we wouldn't prohibit uh, other peaceful uses of outer space, and there actually, actually is a a committee of peaceful uses of outer space within the United Nations uh, still to this day. Uh, kind of recognizing that uh, we can't go uh, plant a flag in something and calling it the first 51st state, that doesn't prevent us from going and, and extracting a resource from it and, and bringing that resource to market, uh, much in the same way that you get a license to go fish or uh, you, you, uh, you don't necessarily own, need to own the land the trees grow on uh, or even have property rights where a mine is established. But of course there's a legal framework around that. and.
framework that had to develop uh, as we became more civilized and developed laws and regulations for such things. And all this will happen in space as well. And the next step that's actively happening on this today is here in the United States, uh, the US Congress actually has taken up this, this very issue. And uh, there's uh, legislation that has been passed by Congress uh, and the House uh, and the Senate is uh, currently reviewing it, which puts a little bit more specificity to this, of talking about how commercial entities can operate in space, how you can uh, uh, own something, what you can extract it, how to settle disputes, all those, all those kind of things that deal with human activity under, under any topic, under any location. And uh, we were talking at uh, dinner earlier tonight about uh, sometime soon we're gonna have to start the United Federation of Planets, but we're not quite there yet. Uh, but I think we've seen in every area where we have new technology or new human activity uh, that there's uh, a little bit of kind of keeping pace with the technology and the policy that's related to that. And uh, we're going to keep making tentative steps in each kind of every year as we go forward and very excited that uh, the U.S. Is, is taking this up specifically. And, uh, you know, the next thing to do is to, to go out and do it and uh, set precedents and, and create a business so that we can tax it. <laughs> And, but you, you mentioned uh, you mentioned two uh, two sides to this. You mentioned the uh, the United Nations uh, panel, and you then mentioned the the U.S. Uh, uh, regulations or uh, frameworks. So, uh, how is the negotiation between the United States and uh, international <laughs> partners or? Um, yeah, viewpoints. Yeah, there's probably no negotiation necessary. Uh, you know, the UN has established a, a lot of different policies, whether they deal with registration, everything that launches into space, whether it's a CubeSat or a spy satellite, uh, has to be registered so that we know what's going up there and when we know it might be a hazard to something. Uh, there are laws out there that deal with liability. Now, when the United Nations create these, every country in the world that is a signatory to the treaty has to create their own laws and their own interpretations on how they're gonna enforce that. And in fact, everything uh, that Congress is considering with this uh, le uh, legislation actually still is kind of in compliant with all that. So uh, like many things, uh, you know, internet laws that come up in the US kind of get considered, considered worldwide and we find the right operational uh, precedent. And just as uh, uh, startups and entrepreneurial businesses are trying to find the right business models, uh, in a lot of cases, the uh, political models and frameworks kind of follow that. So. Uh, it's certainly an exciting time uh, to be developing all this. It's, uh, it's kind of graduating beyond the Wild West into a little bit more civilized trading town. So looking forward to that progress. Thank you. That's, uh, that's um, um, very, very illuminating for uh, uh, many of us, certainly for myself. Um, I'd like to take some questions from the audience now. Okay, so let, let's take this in pieces. Uh, so one question, one part of the question is concerning the um, uh, the, the extension of the, of the legal frameworks uh, on the Earth uh, to space, kind of automatic extensions. Um, and uh, uh, the, 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 does, it, uh, does it concern you? And in fact, does it uh, change your perspective as an investing um, organization? Um, this kind of considerations, do you see uh, a um, a potential change in your business model mm -hmm. there. So I think we can, uh, you know, whether it's China, uh, Russia, the United States, uh, or Tonga, uh, whoever it might be, um, uh, we can choose to be threatened by developments in space or we can choose to be excited by them. And I choose the latter. 
And the idea that there you know, is a growth of an economy and a society and uh, that we, we, can, uh, we can continue to thrive and prosper is how do we figure out free trade and, and, and kind of uh, that economic society. Now, you'd mentioned the Moon Treaty. Um, uh, uh, Moon Treaty is signed by about like five countries or ratified by five countries, whereas the outer space tra uh, uh, countries is well over 100. So uh, the Moon Treaty is um, uh, a historical oddity in, in terms of a model for things. Uh, but, you know, this is uh, one of those things is we, we can either, we can choose to uh, you know, welcome China into this part of the economy as we have with uh, every other part of the economy, or we can choose to compete with them. And uh, a, a startup and a, and a business isn't necessarily a strong voice in that, but uh, I think uh, for humanity's sake, uh, you know, we've got to, got to think beyond uh, nation state uh, viewpoints of these and, and uh, use every opportunity to do it, do it better. Okay, okay. So next I'd like to take a question <coughs> for Rob. So the question is concerning the, the path to profitability, uh, uh, specifically for your company uh, and any general thoughts that you have uh, about this process. And uh, uh, at what point did your company, specifically at what point did your company become profitable or at what point are you expecting your company to become profitable? So Rob, would you like to start? So as, as I said, uh, our development and, and growth has been entirely organic um, by winning and performing mainly government-funded research contracts. Um, we have managed to be profitable um, for most of the last 10 years or more, um, except for the fiscal cliff year, which really sucked. Um, <laughs> but because we mainly work on government R&D contracts, our profitability has been very limited to, you know, a, f a few percent, um, which is not very exciting to investors. Um, we are now, you know, we, we've now gotten a handful of our products on the market and are selling them commercially, and those, those are opportunities where we can make, you know, if we do the job right, we can make significantly more profit. Um, so we're, you know, we're, we're starting to, to see some improvement in that area and uh, have some high hopes for the not-too-distant future uh, for, for being even, even more profitable. Um, but I would say that I'm kind of uh, congenitally unable to not, inv not keep investing in the company. Um, so, you know, we're, we're not just going to sit back and, and rake in the money. We, we've got ambitions for new systems and new services that we want to put together, some of which are pretty, pretty ambitious. Um, so we'll, we'll keep investing in those to, to build up towards, you know, maybe 10 years from now we can sit back and, and rake in the, the multi-millions. Rob, as a, um, just as a follow-up to, to, uh, to your comments, but you're, 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 a, uh, you're not a company of enthusiasts who are only paying uh, themselves peanuts. I mean, you're paying yourselves and your employees reasonable salaries yeah, uh, I, yeah you know we're in the seattle area um we have to compete with boeing we have to for you know mechanical engineers we got to compete with microsoft and amazon for all our software people uh so you know we have we have to pay people a, a decent wage and we also have the kind of philosophy that we want employees to be very well taken care of so our benefits are actually way beyond industry norms, kind of mm -hmm. to a ridiculous level. Um, 
but, but you know, I, I, I get those too, and I like it, so I don't want to change it. Um, you know, so, but, you know, so we, we have had to, to be able to still compete with all the other small businesses and the big primes, uh, we've had to learn to operate very lean, uh, you know, learn how to really get a lot of, lot of really good work done for not very much money. Um, so still right now, you know, we're 30 people and 29 of those are technical engineers. We've only got one, you know, administrative type person, which isn't really enough. We need to hire more. Um, but, you know, we, we, because of the way we've developed uh, growing organically, we, we've, had, we've learned that we have to be very penny-pinching and, and very aggressive on cost. So, yeah, thanks for sharing those insights. Michael. Well, uh, Planet Labs is a relatively young company. Um, we are backed by investors, and they certainly have wanted to see realistic business plans. Uh, we, uh, we've attracted about $183 million in investment so far. Um, it wasn't clear, perhaps, at the beginning that people would be willing to pay for pictures of the whole world every day, but it, it has emerged to be the case. Uh, we, we have more in signed contract value than we have in investment at this point. Um, <laughs> Uh, I wouldn't say we're profitable yet, but <laughs> but, uh, but we'll get there. Um, so one of the things we, we had to do in order to make this happen, you know, traditionally space is a very capital-intensive business. You put up a satellite or, or even to build a ground station is incredibly expensive. Um, so we went to investors with, uh, from the point of view of we were going to have a new approach to space. Uh, so we were going to iterate quickly. We were going to develop space hardware the way that we're from Silicon Valley, right? Are actually in San Francisco right now. Um, we were going to approach space hardware the way that companies in San Francisco tended to approach software. So we're already on our 13th major redesign of the spacecraft. Um, everything that goes up into orbit is a prototype. So uh, we are able to, you know, make keep costs low and. Uh, and, and fulfill the mission and get a little better every time. That? Okay, thank you. Chris. Yeah, I think from uh, you know, the outside looking in, a lot of people look at uh, asteroid mining and, and go, my God, that's gonna be decades before uh, you're, you're ever gonna have a profit. And uh, what's, what's been interesting, I guess, to reveal part of the story is that even in traditional mining, uh, there is no one company that is involved in the process from the, you know, the initial survey and exploration and greenfield exploration, is, as it's called, going all the way through, through uh, you know, reducing it to finding the right target, to characterizing that target, to creating the mine plan, to building that mine, to operating that mine, to finally an ingot of copper comes out of the other end. Uh, and because of that, that means actually there's value created and, and money to be made at every step along the way. And uh, part of our plan, of course, is much in the way that uh, the early days of the space program had a number of uh, spin-off and derivative benefits of just trying to solve a very hard problem uh, in a way that hadn't been solved yet. Uh, there's a lot of things in trying to create an ultra low cost remote sensing platform that can go to near earth asteroids. We're, we're approaching the, the problem with a completely different perspective, not looking for five, 10, 15% improvement, but we wanna just come up with the next evolution of the way that things are done. And uh, we're, we're coming into a space now where a lot of the things that we've developed and deployed uh, with early technology uh, at the subsystem level and then uh, with the launch of our most recent satellite 
uh, at the space level, uh, we actually can do things uh, better than a lot of the things that, that are out there on the competitive market. So we look for spin-off opportunities that we can pursue essentially to kind of keep working towards a long, long-term goal. And just like with SpaceX as, a, as an example, Elon Musk wants to uh, you know, die on Mars, just not on impact. Um, the, uh, you know, he didn't start with, okay, let's go to Mars. It's like, well, let's build rockets. You know, rockets are ridiculously expensive. Let's solve that problem. And oh, by the way, the government buys lots of rockets. Now, that's not his only customer, but there is an increment of progress towards his long-term goal uh, of uh, eventually colonizing Mars. And we're looking at space resources in much the same way. And what you often have is the choice between uh, what is known kind of in entrepreneurial and startup circles as, as the bootstrap method, which is, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll save up as much money as I can in my day job and then start working evenings uh, on this side project to eventually where uh, I maybe have to just decide, okay, now I've got to quit my job and do it full time and spend savings and I have to go start selling something. And you, you can't quite do that for a rocket company yet. Um, you can't quite do that for, I would say, even an entire spacecrafty company yet, but it's getting very close. But you absolutely can design, you know, the next best radio system and sell that radio system uh, to other people who are making satellites. You can do that as a single person or as a person, you know, with a few of your friends. Uh, and that's really the bootstrap method, which, you know, if you really want to make a lot of money, that's the way to own your entire company uh, and give it very little of it to investors. The problem is it just takes a very long time. Uh, or you, you have to be on a very lucky idea uh, in the right place at the right time to, to be able to scale that. And the other end of that is go out and get gobs and gobs of investor money um, and uh, give up a lot of ownership of the company, but you know, now time is your enemy and you, you must get to profitability as soon as possible because uh, you are spending beyond your means uh, and you've got to get that product to market and it's got to pay for itself or you're out of business and 300 people are out of a job. So um, I, I think the phrase was when we started this evening, you're going to learn how to, uh, to uh, 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 make money in space company. When you figure it out, let us all know. Um, <laughs> there certainly is no answer, and the journey is, is uh, more, uh, more of it. But it's, I think the most important thing you realize is it's, it's just another business. It still needs a business case. All the normal dynamics, whether it's the corner donut shop or you're making uh, vehicles that dock with a space station, uh, it's very exciting. Uh, and a lot of difficult challenges and a lot of inspiring things, but it, at the end of the day, it still has to be a business. But of the two models you've described, the bootstrap method and the, uh, the um, large investment from investors who are in a rush to make a profit, um, is planetary resources closer to one of these models than the other, or in the middle? Can you give us a sense of how planetary resources thinks about this? Um, yeah, I would say we're in the middle. We're, we certainly would not exist uh, without our investor support and could never have gotten started uh, without some people willing to take a very large risk. Uh, but, you know, that's not going to last forever. And uh, our charter is to find a scalable, repeatable business model uh, that ultimately is towards the service of creating an economy of space through space resources and try and use every opportunity along the way uh, to uh, do all those boring things that you hear about, about increasing shareholder value and, uh, you know, representing core missions. But, uh, you know, it's, it's not a charity. It's a business, and uh, you have to be ruthlessly efficient on how you do things. Okay, that, that was excellent. Um, I see a question over there towards the back corner. 
So is there, is there any, an exit plan for the investors in your companies? Is this a question specifically to one or to all panelists? Okay, so um, we'll start again. Well, we'll start from, with, uh, with Michael this time. Um, sure, well, yeah. well, you sure have to find the right investors. Um, and we have been very, very lucky. Our, our investors, first of all, they really believe in what we're doing. They've really tried to help us along the way. I, maybe I was naive. Before I came to this, I always thought of investing as kind of a passive thing that you do. You know, you hope it goes up in value. That is not what this has been like. Our, our investors have been with us every step of the way. Um, so if they have an exit plan, they haven't told us yet. <laughs> they, they sure seem to want to stick with it for the long haul. And they want to see it work just like we all do. Well, I, I just wanted to comment that um, the industry as a whole is seeing a really interesting change in kind of the exit plan. It used to be that small companies got started and developed their technology or their services to the point where they got big enough that they e either the one of the big aerospace primes realized they were totally reliant upon them or they threatened one of the big in industry primes and then that big industry prime would buy them up. Now what you're seeing is that space startups get going and they get successful and they're being acquired by companies outside of the space industry like Google buying Skybox um, like I can't remember the name of the there, there was another Im company analyzing imagery for uh, agricultural data they got bought by Monsanto or, or another one of the big agricultural chemical companies so we're now seeing you know industries outside the space industry starting to see value in the space segment relative to their businesses. Um, relative to Tethers Unlimited, um, you know, our, we don't really have a firm exit plan other than, you know, dying with our boots on. Um, <laughs> you know, at, at various times it's been, uh, you know, there's been possibilities of other companies buying us, but um, right now we're actually looking at possibly spinning off a couple of our uh, sectors to, to separate companies to, to really help them focus and, and grow further. Okay, Chris. Yeah, I guess to add a, add a third part into it, uh, you know, there's certainly uh, being bought by a company is an exit plan. Um, there, there's the spin out opportunities and that has happened uh, a lot in aerospace where you hear about one company buying part of another company. Um, uh, but I mean, especially in uh, uh, you know, venture capital and other things, uh, or even just private investments, the, the thought of just, what well, it's really not about an exit plan, it's an exit plan for that investor. The business continues on, and in a lot of cases, the, the founders and the, you know, the early teams are, are every bit as important. But now everyone who is holding symbolic sheets of paper uh, that say, I own this percentage of this company, they can now you know, sell that for some value. Uh, so, uh, you know, IPOs uh, have been in favor, out of favor, and coming back into favor. Uh, you know, the idea of uh, uh, having uh, another entrepreneurially publicly traded company that's, you know, not Lockheed Martin or Boeing uh, or some other, you know, very established, very experienced old company, but, um, uh, you know, having a company like SpaceX or Planetary Resources or, or Planet Labs or others be publicly traded is... I would become, it would say probably more of the norm than the exception. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's, that is a certain bar of achievement to get that far. Thank you. There was a, yeah, there was another question at the back. Okay, thanks. So, so the question is about the way you're handling risk in general, uh, as well as specifically to the products that you're developing, but how, how risk affects uh, what you're doing in your companies. 
Um, so we'll start with, uh, uh, with you, Chris. Okay. Uh, when failure is not an option, success gets really expensive. Uh, uh, and as an example, our, our first satellite we built and delivered to the rocket pad uh, blew up with the Antares explosion in a spectacular fashion. Uh, <laughs> Uh, about a year ago, actually, uh, over the weekend. Um, and we were able to recover from that, get another launch, uh, build another satellite very quickly. And uh, I think in a lot of cases, it's not about risk elimination, it's about risk mitigation. And when everything you're doing is an all or nothing bet, uh, you're probably doing it the wrong way. Uh, it's not to say that that's easy to do in the space business, but you know, uh, you'd mentioned earlier, you know, rockets blow up and you lose a lot of satellites, but yeah, you could, you know, they're robots, you can build more. So, uh, so I think it's just kind of part of the strategy. And uh, from an investment side, it's just being forward uh, and open and communicative. It's like, this is a risk of the business and this is how we plan to constrain this risk. So at your level, you do not buy insurance for, um, for this. Ah, well, sometimes you do, and sometimes you, do? you don't. It's oh. it's one of the options that you have. The you know the hardware is not that expensive. You know the launch sometimes might cost more than the hardware costs. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's it's just to manage uh, a, a, if you want to self-insure that or uh, if you've got something something bigger at stake. Okay, thank you, Michael. Other, one great way to deal with risk is to keep building more satellites. Um, on that that same. Orb explosion. Uh, we, we had 26 satellites, <laughs> and then there was a there's a SpaceX rocket. We had eight more satellites on that one. Um, we've had a couple of satellites where the the deployer has jammed and on the International Space Station. And when that happens, they don't you know send an astronaut out to shake it. They they bring it back in and they ship it back down. So this is great. We have some museum pieces. Um, they, they've been to space and back. Uh, but we also have over 100 satellites that have gotten to orbit. So uh, if you have a large enough number of things, you, the redundancy gets built in. Okay. Part of the way we try to address some of the risk of, you know, some of our stuff not working is the very, for the very early uh, tests of technologies, we fund that, we try to fund that ourselves so that, so that we're the end customer. Um, so that we can buy down, buy down the risk, but, but be able to ha have the freedom to take more risk, get something that's not proven on orbit, see if it works. Um, but then when you're doing, delivering hardware for a customer, you know, it, it's got to work there, and that, that's where you, you really can't cut any corners. Um, and so one of the, kind of one of the lessons that I learned the hard way is not to do an underfunded mission. You know, we, we did a three CubeSat mission back in 2007. Um, NASA funded the original technology development part of it, but then the, the flight build, uh, qualification, launch, and operations, we paid for ourselves. Um, and, it, and, and it was, we didn't really have enough money to do it, so we cut some corners, and that, that came back and bit us. Um, the mission was not a complete success. Um, which, you know, was, was pretty painful experience, uh, but it was a partial success, and we were actually able to to learn learn quite a bit from that and use that to to bootstrap us into some new business areas. So, you know, another another part of it is just the fact of the matter is your stuff's going to blow up. The important part of it is you got to be ready to learn from that and find some way to take advantage of it. 
an another really great case uh, is we've been working with um, a professor at the University of Washington who has a, a rocket program with his students. And one of their rockets, you know, they launched it and students got some wires backwards or something and something didn't happen right and the rocket went up and powered itself into the ground and, and dug a hole. And the students were all unhappy, but the, the professor, you know, noticed something really interesting about the way the rocket dug a hole, and he realized that there was an application for that. And, and now he's got, you know, he's got significant funding for a an planetary sampler based upon smashing probes into at <laughs> kilometers per second. So That's you how just, he came across penicillin. Yeah, you, you, you got to be... I, I guess the way I, I kind of think about it is you got to be a little bit bipolar, and I, I don't mean to make light of the psychiatric disorder, but you got to both be really ridiculously optimistic to, to take on these crazy tasks, but you also have to be pessimistic to worry about all the details and come up with contingency plans and be ready to make lemonade. Well, I'd never heard about um, a failure of rockets in such, described in such a positive way. I think this is, uh, <laughs> this is just wonderful. I think I'll add it to the statistics that I collect. Um, okay, so another question. So, so the question is concerning the, the size of the aperture in space for whatever imaging need uh, or communication need. Uh, and so, okay, well, let's start with uh, uh, maybe with Michael. Um, yeah, aperture, yeah, absolutely. I, we think about that every day. Um, what we are going for is, is temporal resolution. Traditionally, it's been spatial resolution. So you talk about the diffraction limit, you've got your lambda over d. Um, our aperture is only around 9 or 10 centimeters. The CubeSat's no more than 10 centimeters across. So that does constrain uh, how much detail we can see on the ground. Um, we could typically 3 to 5 meters. Now, that said, you look at the pictures, they look pretty good, especially the latest generation sensors. Um, but, but the goal is to get to resample it every day. And so uh, if we're undersampled in some way in space, maybe we're correctly sampled in time and we get to pick up those changes. So it becomes a question of uh, asking what you can do with, with what you have and, and, and what new things can be done. I think it's an enabler for new technologies. Yeah, in our case, uh, you know, not going after spatial resolution, uh, maybe not even temporal, but we're going after spectral resolution. And uh, to a certain extent, you know, we're photon limited, uh, not diffraction limited. Uh, so, you know, in a lot of cases, what we're looking at, uh, you know, a 10 centimeter aperture isn't big enough, so we're going with a with 20 centimeter aperture. We have the great advantage that uh, uh, the when we want to get higher resolution of an of an image of an asteroid, we can just go closer, uh, and uh, we don't have to worry about the pesky atmosphere. Uh, you know, eroding our satellite at seven kilometers per second. Uh, so uh, that's one advantage that we have in space. And again, you know, I would say you make do with what you have and you, you focus mercilessly on what's important to you uh, and you optimize everything around that. And, and I think that's a lot, a lot of times that's the difference between a, a you know, commercial effort and a scientific effort uh, uh, or a, a government funded effort is you, you try to do a lot of things great uh, and you should just from a commercial thing, it's like do one thing better than everyone else, uh, and the rest will take care of itself. So you, you point out a, a, a very significant limitation of these small satellite platforms, uh, but we frankly see that as a, as a significant opportunity. Um, 
right now I'm focused on developing the technology and, and a business plan document for a, a new spin-off venture to do in-space manufacturing. What we want to do is take up raw material in very small, compact, durable form and then process it on orbit to make large apertures, large solar arrays, that sort of thing, and then integrate them with the small satellite buses and payloads that you launch from Earth. So, and, I, and, I, and we believe that if we can do that, we can get to you know, big system performance capability with the small satellite prices. Okay, so that's, um, okay, another question now. So the question is about uh, uh, hiring strategies. Uh, how can you also not only be successful in hiring, but also in maintaining uh, uh, motivation, productivity, and whatever else it takes to be successful? Um, okay, shall we start um, at, the, at the far end, Rob? Well, in hiring, um, it, it kind of depends upon, upon the job. Some jobs we look for a particular skill or a particular experience that someone might have and, and trying to find something close, close to it. Uh, but we also look for you know, people who are a little bit more generalist and, and try and find them a spot. We look for people who we know actually get stuff done. So we don't, when I look at somebody's resume, I, I don't even look at the classes they take. I look at what projects they worked on. Um, and then in, in terms of finding people, you know, maybe half of our people we've found just through advertising jobs and getting resumes and doing interviews, but probably our, you know, a few top, real top performers are ones that have come to us kind of through referrals, you know, professors that we've worked with who have said, hey, you really need to look at this guy or this gal, um, you know, they'd be a good match for the kind of stuff you do. Um, you know, th those I would say have been our, you know, the highest quality recruits we've gotten. Um, and then in terms of keeping them motivated, you know, we, we try, to, try to give them as much uh, ownership of their projects a, as they're able to take on um, and, 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 and try to compensate them appropriately when they succeed. Okay, thank you. Um, Michael. So uh, I think the most powerful recruiting tool that we have is how compelling the mission is. Um, a lot of people want to get into space, they want to work in space, um, but maybe they, they could launch one mission in a career or two missions in a career, be a part of that. Um, we launch every quarter. <laughs> if I want to put something on a satellite, there, there's a guy named Ben, I just put it on his desk and sooner or later it'll get on the satellite. Um, so it's, it's such a, it's compelling first of all from a technical point of view, but it's also compelling um, from, from a, a goals point of view, right? We want to image the whole world every day and uh, it's really because we want to do things like environmental monitoring, right? I mean, we're, we're funded in part by the World Bank. Um, we want to, to bring maps to places where, where they don't have them. We want to help farmers. Uh, we want to help environmental monitoring and deforestation. These are things that people really want to get involved in. So it just becomes a question of making sure that people know about what you're doing and the, the most talented people will come your way. That's certainly been our experience. Uh, everything with what they said, and, and we're hiring. Um, um, yeah, I, I, I want to have a special emphasis with what uh, Rob brought up about um, you know, experience in doing things. And it doesn't necessarily mean doing the things that we need you to do. Uh, uh, it's you know, just making things happen. Uh, and you know, 
coming through the engineering curriculum myself and kind of graduating through that experience, uh, the technical knowledge of how to do things is necessary but not sufficient. Uh, so there's a lot of working with other people, uh, working with other disciplines, uh, and um, really just being driven in one way or another by, uh, we, we look at planetary resources, we look for some, some portion of affectation uh, where you are possessed to do something. Uh, and where you are, you know, it's, we want you to have passion. It doesn't need to be passionate about asteroid mining. It, it could be passionate about making wine, uh, but that you have that within you uh, and that you can pursue something to the point of it being all-consuming and, and an obsession uh, is a, well, we're, we're a therapy group for that. So if you've got that problem, uh, come our way. <clears throat> Okay, so you had a list of the special qualities that are needed and uh, that included winemaking. Yeah. Um, okay, there was another question near the front. Uh, yeah, so the question is concerning the, the relationship between companies that are pushing the boundaries, which, are, uh, uh, which is the case for all three uh, of the companies represented here, and uh, uh, the existing regulations and how they, uh, they constrain you or perhaps facilitate uh, your work. Um, yeah, shall we start um, from Rob's end? I'm not really sure. Oh, that okay. I, well, I, I'm, I'm not sure we really operate in the regime where we, I mean, I mean the main regulation that we deal with is uh, with respect to orbital debris mitigation. Um, so our focus there has been developing products that will help satellite integrators meet the 25-year the lifetime restriction on, on, on spacecraft post-mission. Um, you know, and, and there we have to kind of deal with the peculiarities of, of the regulation. With the, There are particular laws that regulate the particular technology that we work on in what I consider somewhat unfair manner, but we have to work with it. So, you know, we, we design the system to deal with that. Uh, um, I'm not sure we work, work too much on regulations beyond there. We'll take this um, question broadly, as in whichever way it applies to what you do. I think that this is the, uh, the intention of the question. So, yeah, by all means. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah we, sure. Michael. We certainly live in a, operate in a world where uh, there are a lot of regulations on space, and that's so that we can be good citizens up there. There's uh, concerns about RF interference with other, other satellites. There are certainly uh, restrictions on what we're allowed to photograph. Turns out we can photograph absolutely anything on Earth. We just can't point up. That's the, um, but uh, we try very hard to stay in compliance with, with everything that we need to stay in compliance with so that we can continue to operate. And uh, we've been, uh, in, not only within the US, but also internationally, there's, there's a lot of treaties on these subjects. And uh, we've been commended a few times for being particularly compliant, which is, I suppose, a great thing to be. I guess I'll pick up the end on uh, hardware standards, um, you know, whether they apply to our company or others. Uh, certainly the CubeSat standard uh, has been something that has been uh, enabling as a target uh, when you can fix one aspect of the design and not have to worry about what shape it is uh, or, you know, how do I get into space or how do I attach this to that when the options are literally infinite. Um, that can kind of focus on, it's like, all right, now just go, go build something good. 
so that's helped. Certainly, you know, things like communication standards and packetization and uh, those things are in widespread use. And now you can you can buy a software-defined radio uh, or make a software-defined radio and be able to pick from any one of those standards that you might want to use. Um, there are standards under development uh, uh, at uh, uh, JPL and elsewhere for interplanetary internet and the relay and, and the communication and reliable transmission of data that actually, and this, this for me is, I guess, one of the more exciting things is it's, in a lot of ways, we aren't uh, necessarily like innovating or doing things that have never been done before. We're just taking technology. It's not made its way into space yet. And it's been... It's been at least a decade, maybe two, since uh, the the balance of innovation shifted from the aerospace world to like the mobile computing world and uh, medical technology and even the automotive industry. And now you have the benefit of billions upon billions of dollars of of R and D and research and consumer demand and product cycles that have created all these wonderful safety critical things that make sure your anti lock brakes work that have created a software standard and a communications bus standard that in fact has found its way into space. Uh, so it's, it's looking for where st standards make sense and allow you to do more things and in some cases where we haven't found it yet and we gotta keep trying. So this is um, uh, insightful. Uh, <laughs> wow, I see so many, <laughs> so many hands up. I, I think we'll go back, uh, yeah, uh, over there, uh, about row four. So this is um, a general question on uh, manned space program. Are they valuable or are they a waste of money? Um, okay, so quick, quick, quick answers, please. So I, I, think, okay. I think we should be funding both. I, should, I think we should be funding both at higher level than we are now. But, um, you know, for, for exploration of really challenging environments and distant planets, you know, I think, I think robotic systems are a clear winner. But for m missions or programs where the objective is really um, expanding the, the human experience, you can't do that with a robot. So I, I, I'm in support of both. I'm, I'm not going to fight for one or either. I'm going to fight for both of them. Okay, Michael. Obviously, we're in the business of sending space robots up to go up and take pictures. That said, if you ask absolutely anyone at Planet Labs, would you like to go to space, they will all say yes, especially our founders. That's why they're in this business, I think. I think the robots are just a, you know, a, a teaser. So. <laughs> okay. uh, yeah, I think uh, uh, we can uh, end human exploration of space as soon as you're ready to have a robot go on vacation for you. <laughs> okay, another question. So, so the question is about, uh, uh, is there a, a higher barrier to the creation of a company that will uh, be working in space uh, in comparison with, uh, you know, just a little guy that sets up a, a, a business uh, in, a, in a garage and gets things moving, maybe creating new software or kind of more, the, the companies that, as it were, operate, I don't know, on, in the internet and, uh, in, uh, in our local communities. What is the key difference in terms of barriers to getting started with uh, uh, a company uh, that works in space? So maybe we start with, uh, uh, with Rob again. He, is, uh, he has started the company, so we can uh, literally. So, so I think the main difference with respect to other industries is, is mainly time, um, particularly I'm coming from the perspective of developing unconventional new technologies for space. 
where the space industry is very risk averse. So to get a satellite integrator to buy your new technology, you really have to have it proven first and the timelines for getting that developed and proven in flight so that then you can sell it and get some revenue from it are very long, uh, typically very long. For example, we first started working on deorbit devices for end emission disposal spacecraft 20 years ago, um, and it was only a couple years ago that we finally got our first products launched into space. Um, but we are seeing that, that barrier change now where the small satellite, um, the standardization of the components and the lower cost of these systems and, and, the, and the higher tolerance for risk with small low cost systems is enabling new companies to very quickly go from starting to getting, getting satellites on orbit and, and starting to generate revenue. Um, so I, I guess I kind of have a, have a, a jaded perspective. I'm, I'm sure these folks have a have, have different perspective. But, but there isn't a specific barrier in terms of, as it were, the, the amount of cash you need to get started, which perhaps is the question. Uh, is there a kind of a minimum threshold? You know, if, unless you've got a million, don't get started. Or unless you've got 100,000, is that? No, I, I, I don't think so, like because that? there, I mean, if you've got a good idea, there are avenues for getting it funded. Okay. Um, you, know, from, you know, from NASA, small business, Innovation Research Program from DARPA. DARPA does seedlings to small companies. Uh, NASA's Innovation, Innovative Advanced Concepts Program, or NIAC, funds all sorts of crazy stuff. We've had a whole bunch of those crazy contracts, um, and and now you're seeing, you, you know, you're seeing some even some big investors put money into stuff that I'm kind of scratching my head over. Um, okay. You know, there's just an in investment in a company to do antimatter propulsion for CubeSats. Wow, okay. Uh, I mean, I, I love antimatter propulsion, but on a CubeSat, I think it's a little... It, yeah, I mean, okay, be, Michael, I, my hat's off to them. Sorry, I didn't mean to. My, I'm Michael. Oh, gosh. Well, I can only speak for, for Planet, where uh, if you want to image the whole Earth every day, you need a lot of satellites, and that certainly takes a lot of capital. So, so there's that, but also um, I'd say one of our limiters is access to launch. Uh, we, we benefited immensely from this CubeSat standard form factor. Um, there's a lot of trips that we can ride on. We don't have to buy our own rocket every time. Uh, but there's still a limited number of trips up and uh, got to get a lot of satellites up there. So it, it takes time. Yeah, the, the barrier for space businesses is higher than many other things that you might do. Um, I think the good news is it's getting a lot better. Uh, much like in starting an internet company 15 years ago, you had to start your own server and pull your own ethernet and write your own code and make your own stack. I can buy all those as a service for 1995 a month today and focus on the thing that makes money uh, because all those other things are unnecessary. So now I can buy brokered launch services. I don't have to buy the entire rocket. I can contract with another company for relaying the data through ground stations. Uh, I can probably even get, you know, operation services that will, is it, like all these things are kind of developing because more and meet, more and more people are trying experiments in these businesses. Uh, and as it gets more and more commercial, more of this will be available. So it, it has never been cheaper to start a space company uh, <laughs> than it is today. Uh, uh, and I actually think, uh, uh, I was thinking of a phrase when we started out tonight, you know, the best way to make a small fortune in space business is to start with a large one. Um, uh, I, I think that that phrase can be retired. 
uh, because you know, I think the opportunity in the playing field has never been more level. And if you've got an idea, you know, whether it's uh, using the government incentives that are out there to help start the company or private investment groups, there's a group called Space Angels Network uh, that has a lot of individual network investors. They host events all over the U.S. and even around the world um, where uh, you know, individual people who want to invest five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars all get together, and maybe that means two hundred fifty thousand dollars to start your company. Uh, and that will that seed money uh, will help you then get the attention of you know Planet Labs venture capitalists uh, because you've taken your seed idea and you've shown that you can you can uh, you can execute on it. So, um, but if that's not for you, start a photo sharing app company. Okay. So, <laughs> so there was a follow-up. Yeah. Manpower. In terms of how many people are needed to get a company started. So, okay, that's just a follow-up. We'll, we'll deal with this quickly. Um, uh, Chris, do you want to kind of take that too? It depends on the scale of what you're doing. I mean, there's, there's a lot of solo entrepreneurs who are in the space business doing meaningful things with just themselves. Okay. We, we obviously got quite a bit bigger recently, but um, you should know that Planet Labs is a very vertically integrated company, right? We design and build our own spacecraft. We, we own and operate something like 30 ground stations around the world on three continents. We do our own mission control. We sell the pictures. So we, we do our own mosaicing and things like that. Um, and you'd think you would really need a lot of people for that, but we managed to get started with not that many. Um, How many? Well, started, we started with three. Three, okay. <laughs> Um, okay. So say at the time we, we first started getting lots of data around a couple of years ago, you know, 30 or 40 people. Okay, Rob. Uh, well, it, we started off as a two-person company and, um, you know, for mo most of our time our, our growth was very, very slow and, and kind of limited. I would say we kind of hit what I felt was sort of a, a critical mass when we were about 10 people. Then we had a, the, we were able to have kind of the diversity of different skills and just enough bandwidth to, to be able to really go after a whole bunch more business and bring in a whole bunch more business. And, and from there, we've, our, our growth has really escalated. Um, so I mean, that's just one, one data point, but that, that's where we saw the critical mass happening. Okay, thank you. So we're going to take one last question. The question was, uh, at what point will commercial space industry uh, be able to be, become independent of, uh, of government funding, or to what extent is it dependent on government funding today? So, yeah, DirecTV, uh, I'm pretty sure, doesn't get any government funding, and they're a commercial space service company. So, I mean, that date's already arrived. Um, on the other end of things, you know, even Elon Musk, uh, with all of his uh, achievements and uh, certainly one of the best entrepreneurs on the planet, would not have gotten where he was today without the NASA contracts that he has, and, and he shared that freely. So I think uh, what has changed uh, is since Rob uh, uh, started this, uh, you know, from the 90s to the 2000s to today, what, is, what has changed is it is no longer a business plan to create a company whose only customer is the United States government or any other government, and you must have some other part of, of your company. You can count on the government for you know, anchor tenancy, perhaps, on it, but that's not easy either. Um, uh, but you know, it is, uh, I think this is a, a quote from a, 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 a website that collects the sayings from Elon. Uh, you know, 
If you, if, you, if you sell pencils, even the United States government will buy lots of them. So, uh, I mean, they're just such a large buyer of services that, they, that you have to, to factor them in. But um, you know, I think any, any space business that really has a future, you know, that wants to grow and wants to scale uh, and really, in some ways, innovate, uh, I think you've got to, to include a lot of everything else in your business plan. Sure. Yeah. Uh, we... Well, most of our customers are commercial, right? Planet Labs is almost entirely a commercial company. Um, however, it's not like we built the ISS, that the International Space Station that a lot of our satellites come out of. We hitch rides on a lot of other people's rockets, basically, um, where we can get a few square feet or cubic feet and kilograms. So, so yeah, certainly we're, we're on the shoulders of giants for, for getting to space. Um, but maybe not for revenue. And much of that came with government investment. Yeah, and, right. and this These is just the, the direct TV story, by the way. I mean, it's all the communication industry was That's right. with government funding. Um, Rob. Well, I, I think pro probably 95% of our revenue either comes directly from the government or filtered through big primes and, and, and other customers. Uh, so I'm not sure I'm really qualified to answer that. Um, okay. But you know, we, we are working hard at, at diver we're, we're always working hard at diversifying our, our customer base, um, and, and we're seeing, getting some good traction in the, in the commercial market. Um, as I said, I, th I think it's going to be a balance, and for what we've found to be um, resilient as a company, we've had to really work hard to have a diverse customer base because, you know, NASA changes their mind 180 degrees every four years, and cancel stuff wholesale, you know, other program, other technologies and programs go up and down. And if you want your company to persist through, through those ups, up and downs, you need to be working with a number of different customers. So. Okay, so I, I like to ask a closing question to our panel, and that is, uh, we're at Caltech, uh, we are a university, we're a small university, and what we would like to know is, uh, uh, how can we help uh, your company specifically or company like yours with what we are doing in academia? What are the most useful things that we can do for you? Um, maybe starting um, here with Chris. Yes, Planetary Resources has a, you know active relationship uh, both in recruiting and technology with a lot of different uh, universities uh, around the US and around the world. And uh, in many cases, you know, our, our best employees and our, our uh, you know, biggest innovations come out of minds like yours who who don't know that something is not possible. Um, uh, because, you know, every once in a while there's an idea that an expert will tell you that, well, that's exactly why it won't work. Uh, but in fact, that expert's wrong. Uh, so uh, a lot of the fundamental research that's going on and being able to apply that research, I think, uh, is, is a critical resource to draw upon. There's lots of opportunities uh, to partner on activities, uh, some commercial, some government. Uh, we do uh, a fair amount of kind of joint development of ideas uh, where uh, a lot of times it's to develop a relationship with a student or a professor or a laboratory uh, and you know Caltech certainly has a lot of involvement in that and uh, Keck Institute for Space Studies uh, has been an active part of what uh, you know we've been involved with with uh, what has become uh, part of NASA's own mission um, but if you know if it weren't for the work that was going on at Caltech right now businesses like ours wouldn't be possible. Thank you. Um, Michael. Well, first of all, keep pushing back the frontiers of science. 
Uh, we're certainly paying attention to everything that we read out there and uh, absolutely using ideas from the literature. Uh, and also come work for us. <laughs> when you graduate, you know, if you, maybe that third postdoc is not looking so appealing. Um, <laughs> but any, any below, anybody below that threshold is fine. Okay. I, I was here a lot of years, I can talk. Um, so uh, yeah, that, that's about what I would say. Okay, Rob. So, what I would say is make sure that your students get good experience um, relevant to writing good proposals and good reports and good business plans and that sort of thing. We see uh, a lot of you know, young folks coming out of technical schooling with, with great technical skill, um, but they don't have the writing chops necessary in our business. And, and it, you know, the, the fact of the matter is a lot of what we do ends up being writing reports and writing proposals. Um, so that, that is, it, you know, I, I, I would like to see that emphasized a little bit more within technical schools. Well, that is excellent advice. Thank you. So I, I like to uh, close the session. First of all, I would like to uh, uh, thank Caltech Y for organizing this and KISS for co-sponsoring. And uh, I'd like to thank the audience for turning up in such large numbers and also for the questions. And uh, clearly, we were, as you were, ready to keep going much longer. But uh, uh, we have uh, reached the end of the allotted time, so we'll stop at this point. So please join me in thanking uh, uh, the panel uh, for their answers.